Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. If you are watching this, then you see that I have a very fancy background. I have been working hard to try to find a spot for you guys where this looks decent since I am recording from home. If you don't subscribe to my YouTube channel, my Ali Beth Stucky YouTube channel, make sure you do that. The video version of this comes out in the afternoon, but you who are listening to this get to listen to it in the morning. But if you want to watch too, or if you want to share with people who don't listen to podcasts, subscribe to my YouTube channel and you can send in the YouTube uh, versions of this. I also sometimes upload other videos onto there and little highlight clips and things like that. And for those of you who already do subscribe, thank you very much. So today we are going to talk about a smorgasbord of things. We are going to talk about Joe Biden because you might have forgotten that there is a presidential campaign going on right now in the midst of this pandemic. So we just need to see what our friend Joe is up to. We are going to talk about a little bit about AOC and her calling for a boycott from work and what a great idea that is. If we have time, I am finally going to tell you my thoughts on the Out of Shadows documentary that uh, has millions of views on YouTube. You can go watch that. It's called Out of Shadows. If I don't get to that today, I will get to it soon. I promise. I'm going to talk about that at some point. And again, if we have time, we are going to continue uh, the analysis of the Harvard professors who are trying to push a ban on homeschooling and why they're doing that and how that points to a larger flawed and fractured worldview that we as Christians should know about. And then again, if we have time, we will talk about Earth Day, the idolatry of environmentalism and what the Pope had to say about all that. There's a lot that I want to say today that I might not have time for towards the end. I'll just have to make like game time decisions, prioritizing what we will end up talking about towards the end. But I do want to talk to you guys about Joe Biden because there's a lot going on with him. First, I want to tell you guys once again about Classic Learning Test. This is an alternative to the SAT, to the uh, ACT, to the PSAT. They're a new sponsor to my show and I'm really excited about them. They're a great alternative to those standardized tests that are run by the College Board, which is honestly kind of like a leftist organization. And CLT is honestly it really is a lot more rigorous, like it's a lot more accurate, I would say, of a standardized test to be able to measure how you're doing academically and the qualifications that you have for getting into college and all of that. So it's just a really great alternative. And they never would have guessed that they are in a time right now where their biggest competition, the ACT and the SAT, would have canceled all of their test dates for the spring. And they're not excited about that because no one's excited about a pandemic, but they are glad that they have the opportunity to offer three times their testing dates, three times the number of their testing dates right now because they have online proctoring. So your students who were maybe planning on taking the SAT or ACT, they can go online and they can take the CLT exam, which like I said, is very rigorous and a very accurate portrayal of how you're, you know, how you're prepared for college and how you're doing academically. Just go to cltexam.com. They've got, like I said, that online proctoring, so you can do this from the comfort of your home. So if you want to register for the April 25th official college entrance exam or the April 29th CLT 10, that's the classic learning test alternative to the PSAT, uh, visit cltexam.com. Both exams can be taken, like I said, from the comfort of your home, which is obviously necessary right now. That is cltexam.com. So Joe Biden, what is our, what is our friend, good uncle Joe, Democratic nominee up to? Well, 
he's been doing media interviews, which he has to do, which I'm not sure his campaign is super excited about because of how they typically go. I will uh, play you an interview uh, on CNN that he was a part of with Anderson Cooper last week, and you can hear how that went. Kinds of things that that have to be done. Um, you know, there's a uh, during World War Two, uh, you know, where Roosevelt came up with a thing uh, that uh, you know was totally different than a than the, the it's called he called it the you know the World War Two. He had the war the, the War Production Board. Well, I don't know why we don't set up something like a pandemic production board where we. No, honestly, I couldn't tell you what they're talking about, but I guarantee you no amount of context would make that answer any better. I, 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 I press you. I press you. Any Joe Biden supporter who is trying to justify his obvious uh, lack of uh, ability, uh, capability mentally to tell me what he meant by that, what any of that was supposed to say. Again, I'm not making fun of the guy. I am concerned truly about his capacity to serve in any way that uh, I, I am concerned that he honestly has some kind of degenerative thing going on with his brain and that it is a cruel trick that they are parading him uh, into the public arena, into the running for president of the United States when clearly he's not all there and he's just not able to communicate in a way that is effective or coherent at all. Uh, here are just a couple more examples of him just not being able to make any sense. This is at a campaign rally. And by the way, you know, I sit on the stand and it get hot. I got a lot of, I got hairy legs that turn, that, 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 that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down. So it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. They look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. Again, no amount of context, no amount of context would change that. Please tell me if you think that you can interpret that, if you can translate that to me into something that makes any kind of formidable sense, I would love to hear it. I'm very eager to know. Here's uh, another one where he can't remember the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by go, you know, the, you know, the thing. Not just like a, a random part of the Declaration of Independence. That's like a pretty famous, a pretty famous line. There are dozens and dozens of instances of this happening. And look, I'm not saying that President Trump is like the smoothest talker in the world. I remember when he called Tim Cook, Tim Apple, and everyone was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he called him that. But that's kind of understandable. Like you're thinking, okay, he's the CEO of Apple. And so you just say it. Now he tried to like double down on it. It was like, I didn't say that when it was obvious that he did say that. But the media was like, oh my gosh, he's losing it. Well, no, that's much more understandable than saying some of the things that Joe Biden has said. And Trump has pretty much always spoken like he speaks now. He speaks in superlatives. He doesn't always finish his sentences, but he makes sense. Like it's not just nonsense and gibberish, even if you don't like him. Like you cannot watch Trump's recent press conferences on the coronavirus and say that the guy isn't with it. Like he is on his A game, especially when he is in some kind of adversarial conversation with the press. He is totally and completely with it. Now, again, if you don't like him, you can say, well, he's an idiot, even at his best. Okay, that's fine. But he doesn't have dementia the way it seems like Joe Biden does. 
I'm not a doctor, by the way, so I don't know if he does. And I'm not making light of the fact that he does. But his campaign, his people, his family need to be honest about that, that there is something degenerative going on there that probably disqualifies him from being president of the United States. And Trump is going to absolutely dominate Joe Biden because of that. I mean, Trump beat Hillary Clinton, who was coherent and who I think for all of her flaws and all of her failures and faults, was able to form good arguments and to make her case for what she actually believed in these debates. And Donald Trump beat her. He beat her specifically in a lot of those debates, not all of them, but he also beat her with the electoral vote for the president of the United States. So if he was able to beat Hillary Clinton, like it's hard for me to believe that he is not going to be able to do the same thing with Joe Biden. Bernie, like at least he's good at throwing out big moral statements that sound good. It would have been harder, I think, for Trump to actually debate Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders makes what sounds like a very virtuous case. Now, upon further inspection, obviously the things he's saying are nonsensical, but unfortunately a lot of people seem incapable or unwilling to do things like further uh, further inspection. On Wednesday, I mentioned that the coronavirus is the best thing to happen to people like Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo because, or the best thing to happen to their careers, okay, the best thing to happen to their careers because uh, it they are able to distract people from their corruption and from their budgetary mismanagement, for example, and for their lack of leadership and just point to the catastrophe that this virus has caused and they can blame Donald Trump for everything. Well, that's also true right now for Joe Biden. He can kind of fly under the radar. And it's true for most incompetent Democratic politicians right now because they can distract everyone from their own incompetence and aptitude, their corruption, and point to what a bad job Donald Trump is doing. Uh, He's also, Joe Biden is talking about, or other people are talking about Joe Biden picking Michelle Obama as his vice president. That would be smart for him. Probably not that smart for Michelle Obama. It would be smart for Joe Biden because there are a lot of people across the aisle, especially a lot of moderates, that really like Michelle Obama. Obviously, she's very beloved in the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party is probably going to vote for Joe Biden anyway. But she might be able to win some moderates and some people who just don't like Donald Trump because she's very appealing to a wide array of people. Obviously, she's very popular in the African-American community as well. And so that might help Joe Biden. I don't think that it's very productive for Michelle Obama's career because she's already so loved. She is a celebrity. She is um, seen by a lot of people as like the mother of America. And so she doesn't need to add anything to her uh, to her resume in order to make herself any more famous. Like being vice president is not really going to it's, it's just not going to add a whole lot to her unless she wants to do it for just like the common good, the good of the Democratic Party to help Joe Biden win. I highly doubt she would do it if Barack Obama was this delayed in endorsing his former vice president, then I have a hard time believing that Michelle Obama is going to do this again. No personal gain. Maybe it would help politically for the Democratic Party, but I'm not I'm not sure if that would send Joe Biden over the edge or not. He's also talking about, or some people are talking about him picking Stacey Abrams, the person who ran for governor of Georgia and lost to Brian Kemp. Of course, there is this mythology on the left that she really won, but because of voter suppression and some kind of sketchy business that Brian Kemp beat her, that's not true. Even the Washington Post 
has fact-checked that claim, it's just not true. It's a myth. And yet you'll turn on MSNBC or CNN and you will still hear that how Stacey Abrams is the rightful governor of Georgia. It's just not true. And you will see people saying, oh, she's so qualified. You're so qualified, Stacey Abrams. It's very obvious in all of her media interviews that she wants to be vice president. Um, but one, she's not any more qualified than any other state representative. Like that's her background. Any other state representative who has run for a higher office and lost according to that logic, is qualified for vice president. Maybe that's true of some people. It's not true just because you're a state rep who lost a statewide election. So I don't really see why she's qualified. Uh, she is not, I don't think, in my calculation, a smart pick for Joe Biden for his vice president. She is not going to help him win people in the Democratic Party or win people who supported Bernie Sanders but won't support him. But it could turn moderates off and blue collar people, people in the middle of the country who just see her as too radical and wouldn't vote for Joe Biden if she were on the ticket. And now let's talk about Tara Reid. She was a junior staffer in 1993 who claims that Joe Biden assaulted her in 93, I won't go into details of the assault, but there are a lot of, there are pretty graphic details. You can read about them in NPR if you want to. She's a Democrat, okay? She's a lifelong Democrat. She's not a Trump supporter. She did support Bernie Sanders when he was in the running, but she's not some like Republican or Trump plant or anything like that. She uh, filed a complaint actually when it happened and just coincidentally, I'm using scare quotes, was asked to stop managing the interns at the time. And there are interns now who say that they remember that and or interns that were interns then who now say that they remember that and they thought that it was really weird. Uh, she told her friends that she felt like she was being harassed by Joe Biden at the time, that he would stroke her hair and say things like that he likes her legs, which is super weird. Her brother actually said that she told him of the account at the time. So just FYI, all of this, uh, all of this amounts to more support for her story than Christine Blasey Ford had for her story against Justice Kavanaugh. And yet there is only one, count them, one story on Tara Reid as I'm recording this on CNN.com. Most of you probably haven't even heard about this because it is being so underreported. It is being reported, but it's being underreported compared to how the media reported on Justice Kavanaugh. The New York Times took 19 dates to report on the allegation after they learned of it. They were the first uh, they were the first outlet to report on it. The New York Times executive editor Dean Baquette, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, justified that choice, waiting on reporting it and then underreporting it. He justified it this way. He said Kavanaugh was already in a public forum in a large way. Kavanaugh's status as a Supreme Court justice was in question because of a very serious allegation, different than a public way of Tara Reid's. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but you can see you can see the quote online. This is again by Dean Baquette the executive editor of the New York Times. He said, so I thought in that case, if the New York Times was going to introduce this to readers, we needed to introduce it with some reporting and perspective. Kavanaugh was in a very uh, different situation. It was a live ongoing story that had become the biggest political story in the country. It was just a different news judgment. He says that they chose to delay this and kind of sit on it for a while because most people didn't know what Tara, who Tara Reid was. Well, yeah, people didn't know who Tara Reid was because the New York Times didn't report on it. The only reason that people knew who Christine Blasey Ford uh, was was because the Washington Post, if I'm remembering correctly, reported on it. 
The only reason people feel the way that they do or the only reason why people see something, at least online, as a monumental moment is because the press makes it a certain way. And so the press ran with the allegations of Christine Blasey Ford, not just the Washington Post and the New York Times, but CNN, NBC, CBS, all of those outlets said that she is a hero, that she is undoubtedly telling the truth, that no woman has any ulterior motive when they are saying that they are victims of uh, some kind of assault or harassment, but she didn't have any corroborating evidence. She didn't have any substantiating or substantiating evidence or corroborating witnesses. She constantly contradicted herself. She didn't have substantive answers to the questioning when they were on trial. And yet we were told by these outlets and by leftist activists, by feminists, that we need to believe all women. And that's, that was a turning point for me in understanding just how far a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people on the left, in the media, Democratic politicians will go to push their agenda and push their ideology. They try to ruin a man's entire life based on a wholly unsubstantiated allegation. And I remember watching Kavanaugh's testimony. I watched Blasey Ford's testimony, then I watched Kavanaugh's testimony, and there was no question in my mind after that. Um, now, none of us were there on that night, and so I, you know, none of us were eyewitnesses to that, but I was changed by his testimony. That's why I was going to rallies and all that kind of stuff, because it was obvious what the Democrats were trying to do, and they didn't question it. They never questioned it. There was no critical thinking about Blasey Ford's accusation. They ran with the accusation by Julie Swetnick, who said that, uh, and Deborah Ramirez, Julie Swetnick said that she was gang raped by him at a party and then in an interview said uh, through Michael Avenatti, her totally not sketchy, now in jail attorney, by the way, um, and not sketchy was sarcasm in that description, by the way. So Julie Swetnick said that she was gang raped by Kavanaugh and then in an interview said, oh no, actually I don't ever remember seeing Kavanaugh there. And the media had already run with it. So they tried to drag this man through the mud, absolutely ruin his life based on unsubstantiated allegations without any critical thinking whatsoever. And now with Joe Biden, well, we have a more measured response. We're gonna sit on this for 19 days. As the Washington Free Beacon recently noted, Joe Biden has been asked 81 questions in over two hours worth media interviews since a former staffer in his US Senate office accused him of sexual assault three weeks ago. He hasn't fielded a single question about the allegation. According to an article by Mark Hemingway in Real Clear Politics, Paquette admitted that the Times edited its story on Reid's allegations at the behest of the Biden campaign. So they had said that the Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Mr. Biden beyond the hugs, kisses, and touching that women previously said made them uncomfortable. It's an amazing statement. And then they actually changed that. They changed the second part of that sentence uh, because the Biden campaign reached out to the New York Times and said, oh, that makes us uncomfortable. We feel like that's inaccurate. And so the New York Times is taking editorial direction from the Biden campaign, and they want us to believe that they are uh, a trustworthy news site. Alyssa Milano, the leader of Me Too, who led protests against Kavanaugh, said that she's still going to support Joe Biden. That's amazing. Remember, as a good reminder for all of us, if we didn't already know this, leftism is hollow. It's built on nothing. It's built on virtue signaling. So that means that it's all empty talk. Very few, not all, but very few 
leftists actually believe or put into practice what they're saying. So that's why Bernie Sanders, for example, has three houses and preaches about the evils of the rich. That's why Nancy Pelosi will talk about uh, the need for the rich to pay their fair share while she's swimming in her millions of dollars doing a PSA about coronavirus in front of her two $24,000 refrigerators or freezers, refrigerator freezers that have a uh, $5 a pop ice cream cartons in them. Like while 22 million people are out of work, I mean, it's just amazing. It's why Chris Cuomo can talk to you about the moral imperative of staying locked down while he is going to public with coronavirus. It's why Democratic elites, liberals in Hollywood talk about the immorality and the racism of building a wall while all living in gated homes and communities themselves. It's why they talk about climate change and still fly private jets. It's why they talk about uh, taking people's guns away, but they still used armed security. It's why they claim to be for every form of sexuality and love and blah, 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 and mostly lead very traditional, normal lives themselves. It's why they talk about the existence of 79 genders, but still have their own gender reveal parties when they're pregnant to announce whether or not they are having a boy or a girl. There was this article in uh, an outlet called Mel Magazine titled, Why Won't Woke Boys Pay for Sex? about a trans prostitute that learned that his feminist male friends would talk about making sex work, legalized sex work, it's real work, but they wouldn't actually pay for prostitutes because they saw it as immoral. Um, it's why even though liberals talk about importance of diversity and the evils of whiteness and the patriarchy, they have nominated an old white rich dude to run as their nominee for the president of the United States. And you know what's hilarious about that last point? Pew Research survey Democrats asked them if it bothers them that their nominee is an old white man. Most of them actually said no, 59% said no, it doesn't bother me at all. Then you see the breakdown by education in this survey. The more degrees you have, the more likely you are to be bothered by the fact that Biden is an old white guy. 58% of post-grad Democrats say it bothers them versus only 24% of high school educated Democrats. Doesn't it say something about our higher education in this country that you get more and more stupid the more degrees you have? The younger you are, the more it bothers you, this survey says. And let's look at the breakdown of race. Which race does it bother the most that Biden is an old white guy? Is it black people? No. 72% of black Democrats say that they don't care that Biden is an old white man. Only 28% care. Hispanic people? No. 70% of Hispanic Democrats don't care that Biden is an old white man. Only 30% care. It's white people. White, 41% of white Democrats care that Biden is an old white man. They would prefer some more diverse intersectional candidate. And this is true, guys, of almost every social, cultural, political issue out there. The most liberal, extreme, leftist, radical people in the country on almost every single issue is me uh, metropolitan, highly educated white people. They are the most paternalistic bigots in the country. Every stance they hold, they claim they are doing out of compassion for the marginalized minority when the marginalized minority very often doesn't even hold the same view as them. So look at the stances on things like transgenderism, gay marriage, religion, capitalism. The black and Hispanic communities in this country are far more moderate, 
far more conservative and hesitant to em embrace the tenets of leftism than white liberals are, even though they tend to vote Democrat. The truth is that, that liberal white millennials with master's degrees are the elites in the country who honestly resent minorities more than the conservatives that they accuse of being bigots. Uh, they think they know better. They think that they know what's best for minorities, that they know what's best for the marginalized. They're the biggest stuck up, bigots, self-righteous bigots in the country. Uh, they purport that all of these far left ideals that they themselves don't typically abide by in their own lives, but nevertheless want to force upon other people are best for everyone. They say that they're doing it for the sake of the minorities who, by the way, don't even agree with them. This is what the Democratic Party has been about, and I would say it's increasingly until now, but it's been about in some sense since the era of LBJ patronizing uh, minorities who are poor, promising to do things for them, to give them stuff only to gain more money and power themselves and never accomplishing anything that they promise that they'll do. Think about all the Democratic-run cities with large minority communities. Detroit, Chicago, New York, Compton, Baltimore. Have Democrats who have run these areas for decades actually made these cities better? Have they done anything for their constituents? No. Now, I want to talk about AOC and something completely ridiculous that she recently said. But before I do that, let me tell you guys about hydrate. So you might not know this, but 75% of us are chronically hydrated. I actually feel a little bit dehydrated right now, so I need to be drinking a hydrant even more often. If you want to kick the coffee habit, you're worried about your energy levels, if you want to avoid morning sluggishness, that midday slump, you need to make sure that you are hydrated. And hydrant makes that really easy. It creates flavored electrolyte packets that you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. So sodium, potassium, magnesium, zinc, to help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. Hydrant is also backed by research. It is vegan. You've got nothing to worry about. There's no artificial sweeteners. Uh, you just uh, start with a bucket a day for a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com, enter promo code Allie at checkout. That is drinkhydrant.com, enter promo code Allie for 25% off your first order. That is drinkhydrant.com, promo code Allie. Okay, AOC, in an interview, she claimed um, that only in America, only in America would the president who said liberate, because you know, the president tweeted liberate, 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 liberate each state. And she said only in America would that mean that Americans have to go back to work. Here's she, uh, here's she saying that in that interview. There's a lot that we could be doing right now, but ultimately the, I think when we talk about this idea of reopening society, you know, only in America does the president, when the president tweets about liberation, does he mean go back to work? When we, you know, have this discussion about going, going back or reopening, I think a lot of people should just say no. Okay, so she thinks that people should boycott, boycott work. And here's, I know that you're thinking what I'm thinking, that that's absolutely stupid and ridiculous. She's so naive, like she's so insulated, not understanding that people are going to go back to work because they have to feed their families, but also people want to work. 
The, the communists and socialists are always denying human nature, and that's why the regimes run by socialism and communism always end up with subversion or suffering. That's, that's how socialist and communist regimes always end up with subversion by the people or suffering by the people because it denies and suppresses human nature. I talked about, I think it was on Wednesday, how in North Korea during the famine, all of them were setting up these illegal markets, even though they were communists and they'd only learned that capitalism is evil, they all became capitalists because they needed to survive. And also they needed to be able to work, not just for money, but also for morale. Socialists and communists do not, they don't understand that, especially the kind of brand of socialist that AOC is. So this is the socialistic view of work, just so you can kind of put this in some kind of framework and understand that everyone who shares her her political ideas feel this feel a certain uh, a certain degree of this way they see work as amoral so not necessarily immoral although i would say that aoc sees a lot of work as immoral and how certain work is treated as immoral but she doesn't see she doesn't see work as inherently good or inherently virtuous she doesn't believe I'm sure if you press her on this, that people have to work, they have to be productive in order to have morale. Otherwise, our bodies, our minds, our spirits atrophy. Like she believes in her Green New Deal, she said that there needs to be economic security for people who not just can't work, but who don't want to work. So she thinks that people should be able to just get paid to terribly watercolor if they want to do that, and that should be perfectly moral but human beings are made to contribute. They're made to do something of worth. That doesn't have to be paid work. So if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a volunteer worker, like if you volunteer at church and you don't actually get a salary, that is considered the kind of productive, beautifying, nurturing, maximizing work that God has called people to. AOC, I know she claims to have some sort of religion. She doesn't have a biblical worldview. I think we know that based on her understanding of gender, abortion, marriage, all that kind of stuff, but also based on her socialistic outlook. Socialism and a biblical worldview are always going to contradict each other. You can go back and listen to my episode titled Socialism for a more holistic uh, holistic explanation of that, but we talk about that a lot. She views work as amoral, so you don't have to do anything productive in order to live any kind of meaningful life, and the human spirit and the human mind doesn't necessarily need productive work in order to survive and thrive. But the Bible tells us differently. If you look at the creation accounts, God made work, uh, God made Adam have a role, a productive role before the fall. Work is not a product of sin. Work is not a product of the fall. Yes, of course, there's sinful work and there's work that glorifies God, but work is inherently good. Work is a, a pre-fall invention of God that he gave men and women to do. And again, that can be work in the home, that may be work outside of the home, but God made us to do work that glorifies him, that is productive, that adds to the world around us. The small plot of the universe on which God has placed each individual, our responsibility is to do everything we can for the glory of God, for the good of other people. That is what work is supposed to be. It can be meaningful, whether you are a janitor, whether you are a CPA, whether you are a blogger, anything that has the capacity to be done excellently, morally, according to God's standards for his glory is meaningful and good work. It's the AOCs and the socialists of the world who actually demean certain kinds of work because they think that it's not uh, dignified enough. So they think that minimum wage workers should be paid 
you know, $60,000 a year because it's not dignified enough to make a minimum wage. There's a lot of economic misunderstanding among her and socialists that we can talk about, but that is where she is coming from when she says people should boycott work, not understanding that people need work for their souls to thrive and survive because she doesn't have a biblical framework for which she is understanding things. She has a morally relative socialistic framework. But as we as Christians know, work is not amoral. It is not immoral in a general sense. Work is inherently good. It is virtuous. We all have to be productive. We were not made to be bumps on a log. We were not made to exist. We were not made to just watercolor if that's not your actual career and people aren't buying it. Like we're not made to just exist and have the government take care of us. We are made to actually do something and to make the world around us better. That can be a small circle of the world. That might be a large sphere of influence, whatever you know, God has given us to be able to steward. But you should read the book, AOC and everyone out there, uh, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. He explains this really well, the biblical view of work. I love that book, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller, AOC. Highly recommend it. I know you're a huge fan of Relatable. Uh, but this is a radical idea. This is an extreme idea. This is how every socialistic regime has started by saying, oh, we're going to take care of you. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. We should have this huge social safety net at the same time as letting everyone in from every other country. Those two ideas also contradict each other, but there's AOC once again, not knowing what she's talking about. Okay. I do want to talk about, um, this, this crazy idea, speaking of communism and just the craziness with, with the socialistic mindset. So we talked about on Wednesday how there are Harvard professors who are trying to push for a ban on, uh, they're trying to push for a ban on homeschooling because they think that homeschooling is dangerous because 90% of homeschooling teachers, this professor Elizabeth Bartholet said, are conservative Christians, very scary, and they learn things about Bibles and about the Bible and con the Constitution, and it's just very frightening, and they obviously want the state to have control over your children. Elizabeth Bartholet argued that the government has a right to educate your children. Would love to hear where she came up with that idea, and that it's very scary, she says, for parents to have authoritarian control over their children from the ages of zero to 18. There were all these myths about homeschooling in the article. If you want to hear my more thorough analysis of her perspective and the questions I have for Professor Bartholet, you can go back and listen to Wednesday's podcast, A Little Tyrants Everywhere, because that's what these people are like. They are tyrants. And it's just funny. They're arguing also that the government has a right to educate your children. So she is saying that children should go to public school. She's teaching at a private school. So that's a little confusing. Now, Harvard is having a conference in June about the scariness and the terribleness of homeschooling. And James Dwyer, who is going to be moderating that, he has something to say about parenthood. The state needs to be the ultimate guarantor of a child's well-being. There's just no alternative to that. The reason parent-child relationships exist is because the state confers legal parenthood on people. So I'm hoping you caught that. He says that the only reason why the parent-child relationship exists is because state confers legal parenthood. 
Well, no, God created parenthood, the parent-child relationship. Now, even if I'm guessing he's an atheist, I'm just going to assume that I can kind of pick it up from his view on, on parenthood and the family. But even if you don't believe in the Bible, even if you don't believe that it's the word of God, it's still a historic text. And you know it existed thousands of years ago, was written thousands of years ago. And so you know, just from reading that, that the parent-child relationship existed thousands of years ago. There were other texts, not just the Bible, who talk about the parent-child relationship. It doesn't make it any, that doesn't make any sense historically, sociologically. It doesn't make any sense to say the only reason the parent-child relationship exists is because the state confers that. So you're saying that only in places where the state confers a parent-child relationship, a parent-child relationship exists? No, that's just not true. That's not true. I mean, look again, we've talked about this before, but look in the communistic countries. So look at Cambodia, how they tried to break up the family, how they tried to take children away, indoctrinate the children, make them wards of the state and defenders of the state, how they had to break up churches and break up any concept of religion. The same thing happened in North Korea. Uh, that ended in suffering. Children have to be taken care of. They have to be taught. They have to be instilled with values. And like I asked on Wednesday, who do you think is better? Just any kind, just any logical person out there. Do you think it's better for the parents who had this child themselves, adopted this child, whatever, they care more about this child than anything else. They would do absolutely anything for the child. They would die for this child a thousand times. They would do anything to make sure this child is happy. That's how the parents feel about this child. You do not know love. I can't, you can't even explain the love that a parent has for their child. Of course, there are anomalies, there are abusive parents and neglectful parents and all of that. But for the most part, parents will love their children. They will do absolutely anything for their children. So do you think that unit, the parents who absolutely love their kids, is better for teaching the kids values? Or do you think the state who doesn't know your kids, doesn't know your kid's name, isn't gonna cry if your kid dies from cancer, doesn't care if your kid goes to college or not, except beyond what it can add to its statistics to say, oh, this public school is, is doing so great, who doesn't know how your child learns, doesn't know all the ins and outs of your child's learning ability and capacities, who is going to teach your child about uh, anal sex when they're 10 years old in mandatory sex ed. Like, do you think that the state who's going to do all those things, who really doesn't care on a personal level about your child or the parent who would absolutely do anything for the child? Do you think, which one do you think? Like out of those two options, which one do you think is better for teaching the children. I'm gonna go with the parents. But this is what communism, socialism, this kind of collectivist worldview seeks to do. It tries to break up everything that breaks up the family, breaks up religion, breaks up community, anything, any kind of institution that an individual can derive values from outside of the state Communism and socialism, in order to exist, has to seek to obliterate. So it's going to make fun of you deriving values or a worldview from faith. It's going to try to minimize faith. It definitely doesn't like homeschooling because that's subversive. You are not indoctrinating your child with status values. And so it's all about control. It's all making sure that individuals only gain their morality, not from God, not from their families, not from private school, not from homeschool, not from local communities, but from the state. So they can control you, get you to do whatever they want you to do. That's what this conference 
is about. Of course, this person, neither does Elizabeth Bartholet, gives any data for if uh, homeschool kids really don't perform as well as public school kids. I mean, you're not going to want to look at that data because it's going to be obvious. And like, don't even let's talk. Don't even talk to me about, oh, homeschool kids might be abused. Of course, that might happen. Let's talk about the abuse that's happening in public schools. Um, okay. I think that's all I have time for today. I'm sorry, you guys. I know you guys wanted me to talk about Out of Shadows, too. I really wanted to talk about what the Pope also said about Earth Day. Maybe we'll talk about that on Monday. Maybe that'll be like the the Theology Monday day. I, I don't know what I'm going to talk about on Monday, but I'll try to work in. I'll try to work in both of those things really soon because I know you guys want to hear me talk about that. Um, I hope that you guys have an awesome weekend. It's great weather where I am, and I'm really excited about that. There is hope to be had. There is light at the end of the tunnel. We are getting, we're getting there. We're getting there. Things are looking up, I think. And I'm praying for all of you, thankful for all of you. Um, if you love this podcast, it would mean a lot to me if you left five stars on iTunes. I will see you guys back here on Monday. Thanks for listening.